Okay, hello everyone, and thanks to Gresham College for inviting me to give this talk. Uh, so this is going to be a talk on cryptocurrencies. So in particular, that means I'm going to be talking about Bitcoin, because Bitcoin is presently the best-known cryptocurrency. By the end of the talk, though, my aim is going to be much more general than that. Okay, so I'm going to talk about what cryptocurrencies are, <clears throat> what some of the present limitations are, how those limitations might be overcome, uh, and more generally, you know, how the future of cryptocurrencies might play out. So Bitcoin has been with us uh, for a number of years now. It was launched in 2009 and started being reported on in the mainstream media soon after that. Right from the start, though, it's been uh, somewhat controversial, right? So for many people, when they first hear about uh, cryptocurrencies, the immediate reaction is that this is just some sort of elaborate Ponzi scheme. Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, there are many people for whom uh, Bitcoin is the beginning of a decentralization revolution. Right, which is about much more than just currency, which more generally is about the flow of information and who controls the information. Okay, so the idea there is that Bitcoin is first presented as a currency, right, as a decentralized currency, but that it provides uh, decentralization methods which are much more applicable, much more generally applicable than that. Okay, so which could be applied to scenarios such as the World Wide Web, for example. Right, so in the context of the World Wide Web, the idea might be that you want to apply these technologies in order to. Uh, Avoid a situation where you have a small number of very powerful companies controlling the flow of information in, in ways that might not be entirely transparent. Okay, wherever you lie on that spectrum, then, right, where, whether you think the cryptocurrencies have significant potential applications or not, one thing we can all agree on is that cryptocurrencies presently have some very serious problems if they're to overcome, if they're going to be useful on, on a large scale. Okay, so, uh, so for example, it's been a major problem for Bitcoin that it's been extremely volatile. And that's been reported on repeatedly uh, in the press. Um, <clears throat> another serious issue for, for Bitcoin, which is often referred to as the scalability problem, is the fact that Bitcoin can only presently can only pr uh, process a small number of transactions a second. Okay, so Visa can process something of the order of 50,000 transactions a second when required. Uh, Bitcoin can process something that orders seven second, seven transactions a second. Okay, so that's 50,000 transactions a second for, for Visa, uh, seven transactions a second for Bitcoin. So this is a serious issue, right? If you, if you want to see uh, cryptocurrencies um, being you know, viable on a large scale, you know, taken seriously as, as large-scale currencies, then you're going to want to see improvements in transaction rates of several orders of magnitude. If you're more ambitious than that, and you want to see these technologies being applied to create a decentralized web 3.0, in that case, you're going to need to be able to process you know, many millions or, or billions of transactions a second. Okay, so those, those are a couple of issues, and there are, there are other issues as well. So what I want to do uh, towards the end of this talk is to uh, talk through what some of the most serious issues for uh, cryptocurrencies are presently, uh, and then we'll talk about what some of the what some of the solutions might be as well. Okay. Before we get there, though, I want to take a step back. Okay, I want to talk um, sort of go through some of the basics. I want to talk about what cryptocurrencies are. How does Bitcoin work? Okay, and then once we've got through some of those basics, then we'll come to discuss uh, the future of cryptocurrencies um, more generally. Okay, so now let's, uh, let's go to my slides. Okay, so the first thing uh, we want to do is to explain precisely how Bitcoin works. Uh, in order to do that, though, we do need a couple of very basic ideas from cryptography, first of all. Okay, so I, I promise this is not going to be a technical talk. In order to describe how the Bitcoin protocol works, we do need just a couple of uh, really basic ideas from cryptography. So first of all, I want to quickly go through those. 
The first basic idea we need from cryptography uh, is hash functions. Okay, so hash functions are very simple things, uh, at least in terms of the, the service they provide, which is all we need to know about them right now. Uh, so they're functions, which means they take inputs and they give outputs. And the form of inputs that a hash function takes is just any piece of data. Okay, so you can think of data here as being represented by binary strings, so just sequences of ones and zeros. Okay, so what a hash function does is it takes any binary string as input and it gives a binary string as a, as a, as a fixed length as output. So normally we work with hash functions which give outputs which are 256 bits long. Okay, so a hash function just takes any binary string as input and gives you a, a 256 bit string as output. Okay, and then it has one other uh, crucial property, right? So it, it's a function which means whenever you give the same input, it has to give you the same output, right? But other than that, hash functions uh, act essentially like random string generators. Okay, so the basic idea there is that if I feed you know the same input to this this function a number of times, and each time I get the same output. Okay, but if I go back and I change the input even a little bit, maybe I change you know a single one to a zero or something like that, then this function will act essentially like a random string generator and will very probably produce something entirely different. Okay. Uh, so in particular, what the, one thing this means is you're unlikely ever to find two different inputs or ever hash to the same value, right, if you have a good hash function. And why is that? Well, that's just because of the number of possible outputs here. Okay, so the number of possible outputs here is 2 to the 256. That's more than the number of atoms in the universe. So that means if I give two different inputs uh, to this hash function, Okay, and if this thing is acting essentially like a random string generator, then the probability it maps these two strings to exactly the same output this is astronomically small. Okay, so you can just basically think of different inputs as always always corresponding to different outputs. Okay, so that's our first basic tool for cryptography. Hash functions are very simple things, basically they're just random string generators, which always produce outputs of the, of the same length. Then the second basic tool we need from cryptography is digital signatures. Okay, and again, the, the functionality provided by digital signatures is extremely simple. Okay, so the underlying cryptography might be clever, but we can black box all of that. All we care about right now is the way in which they're used, which is as follows. Okay, so let's suppose that one person wants to send a message to another. And let's suppose the person who wants to send the message is Alice here, that she wants to send the message to Bob. Okay, uh, so again, the message is just a piece of data. So you can think of it as being a binary string. So in that context, cryptography provides us with a clever process Alice can go through, whereby she takes her message and she uses this clever process to produce a special extra piece of data, right? This, which I'm picturing as this little uh, box of data off to the right of the message here, right? Um, <clears throat> so this, this extra piece of data is specific to the message, right? Which we call that extra piece of data the signature for the message, her Alice's signature for the message. And the way in which this works is that she then sends the message together with the signature to Bob, then, through the magic of cryptography, Bob can be sure that the message came from Alice. Okay, so if Alice wants to send a message to Bob, she goes through this special process, which produces this extra special piece of data, which we call her signature of the message, right? And she sends a message together with the signature to Bob, uh, and Bob can thereby be, be sure that the message came from Alice. Uh, now, it's clear that if this is going to work, then of course the, the signature has to be specific to the message, right? Because if not, right, different messages have different signatures, then, have, well, different messages have the same signature, sorry. Then Eve, who's listening in here, she'd be able to take a different message, right? And she'd be able to take her Alice's signature for the, for the first message, append it to her second message, and make it look like the second message is from Alice. Okay, so we don't want that. 
It's also clear that, you know, of course, Bob has to be able to efficiently verify that Alice's signature is correct, right? When he receives a message together with Alice's signature, he has to be able to verify this is indeed Alice's signature for that message. But it can't be the case that Bob can produce the signature in the first place. Otherwise, he's going to be able to produce messages uh, and produce signatures for those messages and make it look like those messages are from Alice. OK, so I should say here that I'm, I'm picturing the signature as this little uh, box of a few symbols uh, to the right of the message here. It looks it looked like it's only a few symbols long. In reality, the signature would be a few hundred bits long. OK. OK, so overall, it might be slightly surprising that this could be done, uh, but it can be done. Uh, and what's important for our purposes now is it's just that the, the, the functionality achieved, right? And that the functionality achieved is very simple. So when someone sends a message, the receiver can be sure who the message came from. So those are our two basic tools, right? So we have hash functions, which are just random string generators. Uh, then we have digital signatures and the functionality they provide uh, is very simple. So um, they ensure that people can be sure who messages come from, okay? So now we have those two basic tools. Let's think about how we might design our own cryptocurrency. Okay, so the whole the whole point of Bitcoin is that we want it to be decentralized. So ultimately, we want to define a currency, a protocol, which works without the use of a central bank, without any centralized point of control. Okay, and the motivation there is that centralized control or too much centralized control can, can be a bad thing, right? So those in control could be uh, corrupted or otherwise compromised, and decentralized systems can be more robust. Okay, so ultimately, we want to define a, a protocol which works without the use of a central bank. Okay, just to keep things simple to start with though, I'm gonna start by imagining how we might design a digital currency which works with the use of a central bank. Okay, so we'll start off with the use of a central bank and then we'll think about how to remove the use of a central bank later on. It's presumably also the case that our currency is gonna be divided up into multiple units of currency, right? So the equivalent of many pounds or many dollars. Uh, again, just to keep things simple, though, let's start off by concentrating on what happens to a single unit of currency, a coin, let's say. Right? And let's imagine that coin is indivisible. So in that situation, we might run things as follows. So we might insist that every user of the currency keeps a ledger for this coin. Okay, And that ledger might look something like I've depicted here. So this is a version of the ledger that records the fact that the coin is presently owned by Alice. Okay. It also records the fact that the coin was originally owned by John, right? that John was the first owner of the coin. Let's not immediately worry about how John came to own the coin in the first place, because that's a slightly separate issue. So if Alice now wants to spend her coin, what she could do is to form a new version of the ledger recording the fact that the coin is now owned by Frank. Okay, so let's suppose that she wants to spend the coin, she wants to give the coin to Frank in return for some chickens, let's say. Okay. So what she then does is she forms this new version of the ledger, right, recording the fact that the, the coin now belongs to Frank. And she sends this new version of the ledger to the central bank. The central bank then distributes the new version of the ledger to other users. Okay. In order that only Alice can spend her coin, though, we don't want other people to be able to spend Alice's coin, right? In order that only Alice can spend her coin, we better require that her digital signature is added to this new version of the ledger. Okay. So that way, only she can spend the coin because only she can add the necessary digital signature. 
So I'm pitching the signature here. This is this little black box on this new, the end of this new version of the ledger, right? So this is Alice's signature for the new version of the ledger, giving the coin to Frank. Okay, and of course, if Alice had to add her signature when she for the, onto this new version of the ledger, giving the coin to Frank, well, then John would also have had to add his signature earlier on uh, when he formed the new version of the ledger, giving the coin to Alice. So when Alice wants to spend her coin, she forms a new version of the ledger, a new signed version of the ledger, giving the coin to Frank. She then forwards this new signed version of the ledger to the central bank. They then check that everything's in order, that the signature is correct, and so on. And then the central bank can forward this new version of the ledger to all users. When Frank sees that new version of the ledger has been distributed by the central bank, he's then happy to give Alice her chickens. Okay. So what have we achieved with this simple process? Well, first of all, it's clear that only Alice can spend her coin here, right? Because only Alice can add the necessary digital signature to the new version of the ledger. Okay, so only Alice can spend her coin. It's also clear that she can't spend the coin twice because if she forms one version of the ledger giving the coin to Frank, right, and she forwards that to the central bank, and then later she forms a new version of the ledger giving the coin to somebody else, Derek, let's say. And she forwards that new version to the central bank as well. Well, then the central bank will see that this is a, a second a contradictory version of the ledger and the central bank would object. Okay, so only Alice can spend her coin and she can't spend the, the coin twice. So this gives us a rudimentary functioning currency. Okay, so all of that was uh, with the use of a central bank. Now let's have a little think about what happens without the use of a central bank. Okay, so let's run things in a fairly similar way. And let's suppose that when Alice wants to spend her coin, she now forms a new version of the ledger, giving the coin to Frank, as before. She signs that new version of the ledger. Now, though, she can't give that new version of the ledger to the central bank, right, because there is no central bank. So what she does is she starts distributing the new version of the, of the ledger directly to other users of the currency. Those other users of the currency have to check that the transaction is correct, that everything's in order, that the signature is correct, and so on. Once they've done that, they will then pass the new version of the ledger onto other users of the currency who proceed in the same way, and so on. Okay, so what now goes wrong? Well, it's, it's still the case in this situation that only Alice can spend her coin, right? Because only Alice can add the necessary signature, right? So only Alice can spend her coin still. The problem now is that she might be able to spend the coin twice. Right? So what Alice could now do is to form one version of the ledger giving the coin to Frank, right? and another version of the ledger giving the coin to Derek. And the question is, how are we to know which version of the ledger is correct? Okay, and there are all sorts of tricks you might try to get around the issue here. So for example, you might stipulate that you should believe the version they see first. Right, then what Alice could do is to form one version of the ledger giving the coin to Frank, show some people that version first, and form another version of the ledger giving the coin to Derek, show others that version first. Or you might decide, right, well, if Alice is signing these contradictory versions of the ledger, then clearly she's, she's dodgy in some way. So what we should do is just invalidate both of these transactions, and maybe we'll also cancel Alice's coin to punish her. Okay, the problem then is that Alice might first form a new version of the ledger giving the coin to Frank, Right, at this point, she's, Alice has done nothing wrong, right? so Frank is then happy to give her the chickens. Then, once she's, she's got these chickens from Frank, right, Alice can then form a contradictory version of the ledger, giving the coin to someone else. Right? According to our, our new rule, then this would then cancel the transaction, giving the coin to Frank, meaning that Alice is able to take Frank's coin away. Okay, so that doesn't work either.
And in fact, there really is no extremely simple fix. So what can we do here to avoid double spending? Well, let's take it in stages. First of all, we were working according to the assumption before, right, that we were considering uh, a single coin, right? Uh, that was just for the sake of simplicity. So let's now drop that assumption. So let's have a, now have a, a universal ledger, which works essentially the same as before, except that now it records what happens to all coins. Okay, so now all users of the currency keep a universal ledger, which, which records what happens to all coins. Uh, so that version of the ledger might look something like uh, the, in the figure I've drawn here. Okay, I should say at this point that initially I'm, I'm setting things up here slightly differently than Bitcoin. Okay, so we're going to start a little bit different uh, and then we'll, we'll make it like Bitcoin later on. Okay, okay so, uh, so far so good. We're going to now keep a universal ledger which records which happens to, to all coins. Okay, uh, let's also imagine that the way that this ledger works is that each transaction here specifies its predecessor in some way. Okay, so the third transaction here, if you like, will specify somewhere within its data that the second transaction here is its predecessor. Okay, so what that means is that if I'm given a, a valid version of the ledger, then I can't form another valid version of the ledger by, say, just removing the tra second transaction and having the third transaction point to the first, right? Okay, so, right, so we're going to run a universal ledger which records what happens to all, um, all coins. Okay, and we're going to run this ledger in, in, a, in such a way that it's, it's uh, fairly tamper-proof, right? So you can, people can't just take the ledger and change the order transactions and get to produce another valid ledger. Okay, so now what we could do in order to avoid double spending is to specify what we'll call a proof of work for each transaction. Okay, so the proof of work for a transaction is just the outcome of some hard computational task, which is specific to that transaction, Okay, so that's some task which would take the average computer a long time to carry out. Okay, then we agree that when you can only append a transaction to the ledger once the corresponding proof of work for the given transaction has been completed. Okay, so if that initially sounds a little bit mysterious, don't worry, we'll specify later on exactly how the proof of work for each transaction should be defined. Okay. So, okay, so we, we specify that this, so this, so this proof of work has to be completed before each transaction can be added to the ledger. Okay, so now what happens is that when Alice wants to spend her coin, she sends the transaction out into the network of users as a whole, and everybody then starts working to try and find the corresponding proof of work. Okay, once somebody finds the proof of work for the transaction, then the transaction can be added to the ledger. And the way I'm depicting this here is that once someone finds the corresponding proof of work, then the transaction turns red. Okay, so red transactions could be added to the ledger. Okay, so so far so simple. We just specify a proof of work for each transaction that has to be uh, found before the transaction can be added to the ledger. So far, though, it, it might not seem that we've achieved that much. Right? All we really seem to have done is to ensure that it's harder to add transactions to the ledger. Okay, now though, we just need to make two further specifications uh, and would have established a protocol that suffices to, to avoid double spending. Okay. So here are the two further specifications. So first of all, we specify that the correct version of the ledger is always the longest one. Okay. So that's the one with the most proof of work attached. Right. So if any user sees two different versions of the ledger, then the one they'll regard as correct is the longest one. The first stipulation. And the second stipulation here 
is uh, that we specify the transactions considered confirmed once it's in the, well, the correct version of the ledger, once it's in the ledger with the appropriate proof of work, and once it's followed by sufficiently many transactions. Okay, so what sufficiently many means here will depend on the level of security you want. So more security needs to be followed by more transactions. So for the sake of being concrete, you might imagine, let's, let's say a, a transaction is going to be confirmed once it's in the ledger with the appropriate proof of work, and it's followed by six transactions in the ledger, let's say. Okay. Okay, so those are two very simple specifications. We specify that the longer, the correct version of the ledger is the longest one, and a transaction is confirmed right once it's in the ledger and it's followed by sufficiently many transactions. So why why would that work though? Right? Why why would those specifications suffice to avoid double spending? Well, let's imagine right that I'm I'm Frank and that Alice is transferring her coin to me in return for these these chickens. Right? Let's suppose that the longest version of the ledger at the moment looks like uh, I've depicted here, okay? And let's suppose that the transaction I care about is the third one there, the one that I've circled there. Okay. Well, now, if Alice wants to double spend, then she's going to have to form a new version of the ledger, right, which doesn't include the transaction I care about. In, anybody for, in, anybody, in order for anybody to, to believe that new version, though, right, it's going to have to be the longest version of the ledger. So what Alice is going to have to do is she's going to have to fork off before the transaction that I care about, right? And she's going to have to start trying to form a new, longer version of the ledger, which branches off in this new direction. Okay? For each transaction she adds in, though, she has to find the corresponding proof of work. Right? She can't use transactions appearing after the ones that I care about, right? Because we've got this... this tamper-proof ledger in which the, the order of the transactions uh, <clears throat> matters, right? So if, if, I, if I try removing, if I try taking this transaction here and then posting it over here, that won't work because this transaction specifies within its data which, which is its predecessor, okay? So that won't be a valid version of the ledger. Okay, so for each transaction she adds in, she really has to find the you know, corresponding new proof of work. She can't use the transactions appearing after ones I care about because they specify their predecessors. So the problem for Alice, though, she tries to do this, is that while she's trying to form this new, longer version of the ledger, the rest of the network combined is working to extend the longest chain. Yes. Okay. So ultimately, in order for Alice to catch up and produce the longest chain, right, she's going to have to be producing proofs of work faster than the rest of the network combined. Right. In order for her to double spend, she's going to need more computational power then Right, than the rest of the network combined. So that's the guarantee. So the idea is that so a malicious user won't be able to double spend here unless they have more computational power than the rest of the network combined. As long as that's not the case, then what we've established is a secure and tamper-proof ledger which operates in an entirely decentralized way. Okay, so that's basically how Bitcoin works. Uh, there are some further details to tie up here, though. Okay, so first of all, uh, let's call the people looking for the necessary proof of work miners. Okay, so the first, first issue we have is that producing all these proofs of work is going to be expensive, right? In fact, it better be expensive, otherwise a malicious user is going to be able to afford to do too much of it. Okay, so producing all these proofs of work is expensive because there are substantial hardware, electricity, and other costs involved. Obviously, miners won't do their job for free, right? So we better pay them for their effort. How can we do that? Well, it's at this point that it's convenient that we're defining a currency. Okay. 
So what we can do is we can simply give miners some units of currency whenever they find appropriate proof of work. Okay, so that's what Bitcoin mining is, and that's why people Bitcoin mine. Then a, so that was the first detail. So a second detail to be tied up is, um, <clears throat> so far, I've considered a version of the ledger in which we append individual transactions. As it turns out, if we work that way, we'll end up with all sorts of timing issues. Okay, so the basic problem is that the underlying communication network has some latency, <clears throat> by which we mean that it takes time for messages to travel across the network. Transactions are normally reduced at a rate which is high compared to network latency. So as a result of the latency, users will tend to see transactions arriving uh, in different orders. Okay, so different, different users will see the transactions arriving in different orders. Okay, and this will mean that honest users get split between several competing longest chains, different versions of the ledger. And that ends up harming uh, the security of the protocol. Okay, so it turns out to work much better if we have miners group transactions together into large blocks of transactions, as I depicted here. So each of these guys now is supposed to be a block of transactions. Okay, and each block of transactions might actually have a, you know, a few thousand transactions in it. Okay, and then rather than requiring a proof of work for each individual transaction, now we just require a proof of work for each block. Right. So that's the way Bitcoin works, and the, the difficulty of the of, for the proof of work in Bitcoin is adjusted so that on average we have one new block produced once every 10 minutes. Okay, and then so there's a couple of details tied up there, and then one further detail. Uh, so I said earlier on I'd, I'd specify precisely how each proof of work should be defined. Uh, so actually it's quite easy to do this. We can do this using um, any agreed on hash function. Okay, so, so to specify the proof of work required for a block of transactions now, right now we, we require one proof of work per block. All we do is we take the data for the block and then we agree that the required proof of work right, is what we'll call a nonce for the block. Okay, so a nonce is it's a very simple thing. It's just a binary string that we can append to the block, to the block data, so that the extended sequence, okay, the block together with the nonce, hashes to a string which ends in k many zeros, let's say. So here k is a variable which is chosen so as to tailor the difficulty of finding the nonce. So if k is 1, right, that means we've got to find something which, which hashes to something that ends in a single 0. Right, that means that on average, we're going to have to try two different nonces before we find one that works. If k is 2, then on average, we'll have to try four different nonces. Right? So things are growing in pounds of 2 here. In the general case, the average number of tries is, is 2 to the kth power. Right? So if we make k large, then finding a nonce for the block becomes a hard computational task. By playing with different values of a k, we can make the task of finding a nonce, i.e. the task of finding the, the relevant proof of work, precisely as hard, easy as hard, or hard as, as, as we want it to be. Okay, so that's basically how Bitcoin works. Um, of course, Bitcoin has in some ways been a, a massive success. Uh, and it presently has a market capitalization of over $200 billion. Uh, it's important to understand what are the limitations of Bitcoin are, though, and uh, it, there are many limitations. So what I want to do next is just to have, have a little think about what some of those limitations are. I'll discuss some of the limitations. There isn't time to discuss all of the, the various issues that the Bitcoin has. Uh, so a, a first basic, uh, well, a very serious issue here is the fact that you know, Bitcoin is extremely energy intensive. Okay, so uh, recent estimates show Bitcoin mining consuming more electricity than the entire nation of Switzerland. So in the present uh, climate situation, of course, that's something that uh, should be taken very seriously and is something to be avoided if at all possible. Uh, that's one issue. Another another thing you can um, you can complain about with Bitcoin or think about um, 
as a potential issue uh, uh, is the issue of security. So um, in the argument we went through there, it was suggested that so Bitcoin should be secure so long as uh, no malicious user has more computational power than the rest of the network combined. Right? So initially that sounds like it's, it's pretty safe, it's pretty secure. Uh, things become a little bit more nuanced, though, when you perform a more careful analysis. Right? If you start thinking in terms of an adversary who wants to perform an attack, which is, is not just designed to double spend. Think of it, when we think in terms of an adversary who's, who wants to repeatedly double spend, so as not so as to um, cheat and earn money, but so as to bring this currency down. Right? In that sort of context, when we consider that sort of attack, it becomes important to ask, okay, so not just how much computational power does the adversary need in order to carry out this attack, but what percentage of the total market capitalization will it cost them to buy that much uh, computational power? Okay, so uh, it might be that they require you know, more computational power than the rest of the network, but how much would that be? How much would it cost them to buy that uh, computational power? Right, the answer is around about, say, 1% of total market capitalization. Well, maybe that's a problematic situation. Right? If, if, if a malicious user can spend something like 1% of the total market capitalization uh, in, order to, in, order, in order to buy enough computational power to destroy the currency, well, then that's potentially problematic. And in fact, there are very good reasons why a figure of that sort of order of magnitude has to be true for proof-of-work protocols of this sort. Okay? Uh, so with Bitcoin, so far this has never happened. So why would someone spend you know huge amount of billions of dollars trying to bring bring down Bitcoin? Uh, perhaps the situation changes, but if this, you know, if this becomes a vital part of your infrastructure, you might have uh, higher security requirements. Okay, so that's something that's that's uh, a potential issue that's, that's worth thinking in detail about. Anyway. Uh, and then a, a third very serious issue is one that I mentioned earlier on. So this is the issue of transaction rates. So uh, Visa can presently process something in the order of 50,000 transactions a second, uh, while Bitcoin can process seven transactions a second. So obviously this is something which uh, has, to be, has to be dealt with. Okay, so those, those are a few of the limitations. Uh, now let's have a look at what some of the possible solutions are. The first two of the limitations that we listed there, a solution that's already very well understood, is to replace proof of work with something that's called proof of stake. Okay, which is probably best explained by comparing how it works with, with proof of work. Okay, so a proof of work protocol like Bitcoin, as, we, as we've already described, right? So there, certain users are selected and are allowed to update state by appending new blocks to the ledger. Right? For each user, the probability that they get to append the next block, i.e., the probability that they get to find the next proof of work, is proportional to their computational power. Right? With a, with a proof of work protocol like Bitcoin. And a proof of stake protocol is somewhat similar. Okay, we still we select users to update state. For example, we select users to produce new blocks okay, in the same sort of way. But now the way they're selected is with probability proportional to how much currency they own. Okay, so now it's how much currency they own rather than how much computational power they have that matters. So proof of stake protocols bring with them uh, their own set of problems, their own complexities, but they're now quite well understood. Um, and they solve the energy issue and are uh, potentially also much more secure than uh, proof-of-work protocols. Okay, so for the first couple of those issues, proof-of-stake protocols are very sort of promising uh, possibility there. For the third issue of transaction rates, uh, we need to understand the problem a little better before we can talk about solutions. Okay, so the first thing we need to do is to understand why is it that Bitcoin has such low transaction rates in the first place. Well, it turns out that there are two bottlenecks here. Okay, so two bottlenecks and then solutions in three layers. Uh, don't worry about the solutions quite yet. We'll come to consider those in a moment. 
Okay, so we have two basic bottlenecks. Roughly speaking, the first bottleneck stems from what we call network latency, right? by which we mean that it takes time for information to travel across the underlying communication network. So Bitcoin blocks are produced too fast, and this network latency causes confusion and causes the protocol to become less secure. We'll see why, we'll see the details of that in a, in a little bit. So very roughly, that's the first bottleneck. Uh, then the second bottleneck stems from the very basic fact that if all nodes of the network are required to verify and record all transactions, well, then you can only go as fast as your, your slowest node in the network. Okay. So now let's just briefly uh, consider each of those bottlenecks in a little bit more detail. So as I said, the first scaling bottleneck is caused by the fact that it takes time for information to travel across the underlying communication network. Okay, so when a Bitcoin miner appends a new block to the ledger, it takes time for that new block to propagate through the network. Okay. When two blocks are found almost simultaneously, this means that some nodes in the network are going to see one block first, right? And other nodes in the network are going to see the other block first. So this causes different versions of the longest chain and splits the honest nodes of the network. Okay. So now some honest you miners will be working to extend one chain, right? While other other miners are honest miners are working to extend the other. And this makes it easier for a malicious user to double spend. Now with Bitcoin, these splits are happening quite infrequently. But if you double the rate at which blocks are produced, then they'll happen twice as much. Okay, double the rate at which blocks are produced, you get twice as many forks of this sort. Okay, if we, if we get to go as far as producing a block every five seconds or so, then what we're going to see is forks within forks within forks within forks and chaos is going to ensue. Okay, so this is the, the first scaling bottleneck. Basically, net network latency means blocks can't be produced too fast without sacrificing security. Okay, that's the first scaling bottleneck. Uh, and then the second scaling bottleneck is perhaps more basic, more fundamental. The basic point here is that so long as all users have to verify all transactions, then of course this very much limits the rate at which they, they, can, they can be processed, right? You can only go as, slow as, the, the, as fast as the slowest node in the network. Uh, how significant this limitation is depends probably upon the level of your ambition. Okay, so if, if you only want to process a few, a few thousand transactions a second, then it might suffice to overcome the first scaling bottleneck. Okay, if you're more ambitious than that, if you want to create this decentralized web 3.0, well, okay, in the decentralized web 3.0, we can't possibly have users verifying the actions of all users, right? So in that sort of application, one's going to have to deal with the second scaling bottleneck as well. Okay, so those are the two fundamental bottlenecks. Uh, so now let's have a little think about, have a little look at what some of the uh, various forms of solution are. Okay, and then the, the, so the solutions to the scalability problem can be thought of as existing in, in three distinct layers. Okay, um, so roughly then, so layer zero solutions involve improvements to the underlying infrastructure used by the protocol. So if internet speeds have improved, for example, well then it's will increase transaction rates. Okay, so layer zero solutions are generally going to be fairly basic and they're going to help overcome the first scaling bottleneck. Okay, so that's layer zero solutions. Then layer one solutions are those which involve changes to the underlying protocol itself. Okay, so these might be aimed at under, uh, overcoming either the first or the second scaling bottleneck. Uh, so since Bitcoin was launched in 2009, so many alternative protocols have been suggested and developed, and many of those protocols do have much higher transaction rates than Bitcoin. Okay, so 
there certainly are more efficient protocols out there now. Uh, there's a difficulty here in terms of you know, the, the, the herding effect, right? So it's not going to be advantageous for anybody to switch over to those um, those new protocols unless you know a fair number of other people are doing so at the same time. Okay, so the question is, how do you get people en masse to move over to a new protocol? Okay. Uh, sharding is another interesting layer one solution which involves running multiple blockchains simultaneously. Okay, that's a, a possible form of layer one solution. And then layer two solutions, these are perhaps the most potent form of solutions. So these are these are solutions which, if you like, sit on top of the underlying cryptocurrency. So the idea there is you take an underlying cryptocurrency like, like Bitcoin, right, and then without necessarily making any changes to the cryptocurrency itself, you build an auxiliary protocol that sits on top of that and which makes use of the underlying cryptocurrency blockchain. Okay, so the basic idea is, with, with all of these layer two uh, protocols, the basic idea is that most interactions between users should be able to take place off-chain, if you like, okay, and within, when, within this auxiliary protocol, so long as those off-chain interactions produce enough evidence for disputes to be resolved on-chain if necessary. Uh, so a famous example of a layer two solution is the, the Lightning Network, which has been built to operate on top of Bitcoin, okay, which allows a very high transaction rate. Okay, so to finish off with, let's just very briefly talk about uh, what the future holds for cryptocurrencies, what the future might hold. Uh, a basic point to make here is that you know making predictions is made especially hard by the, the human element to all of this. Okay, so the, the human element makes things hard, but we can talk with some authority about what should be technologically possible. Okay, let me, let me lay down concretely what, what the technology should allow for, then I guess how things will pan out uh, in actuality depends on the human element as well. Okay, so one of the big questions here it's just how much appetite there is in the mainstream for decentralized technologies. So as we've discussed, uh, one of the, the main limiting factors for Bitcoin has been this question of, of transaction rates. Can very high transaction rates be achieved? And the answer is absolutely yes, they can be. Okay. The way in which this plays out, though, will depend on the, the human element. Right? So if, if users stay loyal to Bitcoin, right, if Bitcoin remains the number one cryptocurrency, well, in that case, you know, truly uh, fundamental changes to the underlying protocol are difficult. So in that case, you're really relying on um, layer two solutions, right? The kind that we were just discussing, right? So these are uh, solutions which will sit on top of the underlying cryptocurrency and don't require changes to the underlying cryptocurrency. Okay, so in that sort of situation, right, if Bitcoin remains king, then we're relying on, really relying on layer two solutions such as the Lightning Network to facilitate higher transaction rates. If, on the other hand, some combination of layer one and layer two solutions is possible, right? in other words, so if we can replace Bitcoin with a more efficient protocol and build layer two solutions on top of that, well, then this allows for a much stronger solution in terms of transaction rates. Uh, then what role will cryptocurrencies play in the future, given, given high transaction rates? Right? Uh, I guess there's uh, many proponents of Bitcoin talk excitedly about how Bitcoin is going to replace fiat currencies such as the pound and the dollar. Uh, I think the truth is, you know, at least in the short term, uh, that isn't at all likely. And, and if it did happen, it'd be quite a scary thing. Right? So we, with currencies such as the pound, governments and central banks have all sorts of ways of responding to changing economic environments. Right? So they can do things like applying quantitative easing or changing interest rates. And in that way, they can stimulate the economy when deemed necessary and rein things in at other times. Uh, such mechanisms for control are presumably necessary, okay? And I'm presuming they're necessary. It's not really clear what exactly would be the replacement in a, a fully decentralized economy, 
okay, how would, how would those replacements for those mechanisms work? Okay, so uh, it's probably unlikely, uh, at least in the short term, that we're going to see Bitcoin re you know, replacing uh, fiat currencies. If there is a strong appetite for decentralized applications, though, then what we'll see, what I think we'll see, is cryptocurrencies take on a role that exists alongside existing fiat currencies. Okay, so these are, these are protocols which provide methods of decentralization that can be applied to contexts outside currencies, a context such as the World Wide Web and financial markets. Okay, so when everyone looks to apply these decentralization techniques, there are always going to be efficiency trade-offs, okay, at least in the sense that decentralized solutions will normally be computationally less efficient. So that means at least in the, in the short term, if we're going to see the mainstream adoption of cryptocurrencies, then one might expect it to be in applications such as the financial markets, where computational efficiency is, is important, but where market efficiencies are, are key. Okay, so I'll, I'll finish there. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the talk. At this point, it just remains for me to say thanks for listening.